but I think the real capstone to this recent diplomatic surge by President Zelensky um, was his trip to Japan, uh, to Hiroshima for the G7 summit, where he met with all the leaders, not just of the major European powers, but of course of Japan and the United States as well, um, to continue to firm up support for Ukraine and its war against Russia. Welcome everyone to our second Decency Deep Dive, where the three of us here will look at the big topics of the month of May that we've missed and haven't been able to cover on this podcast. So starting with our very first topic, Julian, what are we going to first tackle? It feels odd to say that we haven't covered it because it's the topic that is probably most frequent in news coverage of Europe and international affairs, and it is, of course, the war in Ukraine. But we're going to take a look at Mr. Volodymyr Zelensky's recent travels, not just to Europe, but recently to the G7 summit in Japan. So then we'll be moving on to our second topic. Jorge, what's, in, what's up for it now? So we have a couple of elections that we've been watching. The first of them is a national election in Greece, which has seen the center-right uh, uh, score uh, a stunning victory, really. I mean, a, a really, really great majority, and and um, and we're gonna take a look at uh, take a closer look at some of the policies that Mitsoyakis has been implementing as prime minister. And then the other election is the uh, UK local elections. Yeah, and that will be our last feature of the episode. It's the devil's advocate section. Essentially, the idea is one of us is going to moderate the conversation and the other two are going to defend one position or the other. Well, that will be picked randomly. We'll have this wonderful wheel fortune over here, which will decide which position we take. So that's the devil's advocate section. And it's only for our patron subscribers where we will decide whether the conservatives have enough run space for turn to turn things around ahead of the general election, or whether we are heading straight towards a Keir Starmer premiership in a Labour majority. Lads, let's get cracking then. Zelensky and Europe. Yes, so President Zelensky's first trip outside of Ukraine when the war started was to the United States, which makes sense because they've been the largest contributor of aid. But relations with Europe are probably more critical because there's a sort of permanency to President Biden's status on the war in Ukraine, but Europe is a little more complicated. Obviously, there is the proximate nature of the conflict to Europe and the fact that it bears uh, most of the brunt outside of Ukraine, of course, um, in terms of price shocks, uh, potential overflows, refugees. And there have been a number of issues popping up recently that are sort of tangentially related to the conflict that aren't directly about arms. So one is uh, grain shipments coming out of Ukraine going by train into Poland, and this affecting the local price of grain uh, in those markets. Now, the Law and Justice Party um, has a lot of rural support and doesn't want their farmers being undercut by Ukrainian grain. So that's an issue of tension. There's also the fact that, you know, Zelensky has been asking for a while for F-16s. He needs more equipment. He needs more ammunition. Um, That has been a slow process. Uh, It is easier to get tanks and planes from Europe to Ukraine than it is to get them from America. And similarly, ammunition um, manufacturing is another thing that is easier done in Europe. So he did a sort of recent whistle-stop tour across Europe to many of the major capitals, uh, including stops in Paris and London, 
um, to meet with leaders and continue to firm up support for Ukraine's cause. Um, but I think the real capstone to this recent diplomatic surge by President Zelensky um, was his trip to Japan, uh, to Hiroshima for the G7 summit, where he met with all the leaders, not just of the major European powers, but of course of Japan and the United States as well, um, to continue to firm up support for Ukraine and its war against Russia. Can I, can I, can I just interrupt for a second? Um, it's an incredible trip because he went to Finland, the Netherlands. When he was in the Netherlands, he visited the International Criminal Court. He then went to Italy, including a trip to Vatican City, Germany, France, and the UK. And later on, he also went to Saudi Arabia, where he met with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, he attended the 2023 Arab League Summit. Uh, he was meeting with member states such as Syria. Um, he then went to Jeddah that night, and then he went to Hiroshima, um, so really, uh, very long, very long trip, not just in Europe, but all across the world, really trying to build up some diplomatic sports. Yeah. And I think the Arab League one is probably the, the most important really of the lot, because the G7 is obviously aligned behind Ukraine and so is Europe, but we're seeing this increasingly, um, especially with comments made by Brazilian president Lula da Silva, um, that, well, I, I don't like using this term, but. I guess it's what everyone else is using, so I'm going to use it as well. The fact that the global South um, is not squarely behind Ukraine and is trying to play a sort of more neutral, non-aligned role in this conflict um, for a, a litany of reasons. So part of Zelensky's diplomatic efforts are to try and shift the narrative and perceptions um, among some of these countries. And in many ways, he is better placed to do this than the United States is. I mean, obviously, he is, he is a war to fight at home whereas Secretary Blinken and President Biden um, do not and can continue to travel to some of these places. Um, but it's best heard coming from Zelensky because a lot of the arguments that Ukraine would be making about sovereignty and independence um, jive quite well with a lot of countries, especially in Africa, in terms of their own struggles for independence against would-be imperial powers. Um, so I think that's probably the most important leg of his journey. And perhaps it signals the start of a broader effort by the Ukrainians to... Um, take the diplomatic fight uh, to a lot of countries where Russia had, I wouldn't say had the upper hand, but had been at least not as frosty a reception as they've gotten in Europe, North America, and parts of East Asia. Can we just take a, a step back and look at where the conversation was, maybe not six months ago, but definitely a year ago, on the aid that Ukraine is receiving? I mean, now we're talking about jet planes. I mean, the 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 elevation of the stakes, the kind of Montez extreme that is quintessential to to war we're seeing now, with you know a year ago sending fighter pilots, well, not fighter pilots, but training fighter pilots and sending jets would have seen as a bridge too far, even by kind of more hawkish uh, countries. Nowadays, it's it's part of a new normal. So it's been a remarkable achievement by by Zelensky and his team to be able to to move a needle in that way. Because uh, again, a year ago, it, it probably sounded a very foreign and maybe even dangerous concept. I mean, the fears of escalation are still there, uh, and there's a certain element of complexity um, in terms of the time it takes 
to train someone who's not trained to use an F-16 to then fly it. And there's also additional problems in terms of refueling, because that's an additional thing you have to do because of the F-16's flight duration. Um, you know, these are hurdles that if at the start of the war, the United States and Europe had known Ukraine would not fall um, and that Kyiv would still very much still be standing and had a bit more faith in the Ukrainian military, then they probably would have made these shipments earlier and we'd be talking about Russian capitulation. As it is, everything is on a sort of, okay, well, now six months later, we're going to give them this. And now six months later, we're going to give them this because the situation has changed. And it does make you sort of wonder and think back to some of the early equipment, uh, equipping missions of the United States and the UK and other European powers. Had they perhaps not been burned um, by the rapid fall in Afghanistan, the United States would have been more willing to lend some of its material and equipment to Ukraine, um, holding out for, well, initially rebuffing the Russian attack and then countering it, driving them back and hopefully reclaiming Crimea. Julian, as someone who's based in, in, in Washington here, uh, uh, you're the lobbyist of common decency, so to speak. Um, um, what do you make of the fact, one of the reasons the US didn't want to send F-16 is because of escalation, but another one was also because of a timeline. It was considered that it wasn't worth it, it would take too much time to train the pilots, um, so it was not worth it for risk. Um, it, does that basically mean that we've accepted that we could be in for a much longer haul? Um, if they if they start and make the, the shipping of F-16s over, then yes, it would be an acceptance by the Biden administration and Congress that Ukraine Ukraine's war with Russia would be going on for several years because the investment would be so significant that you would only do it if you anticipated this going on for the long term. And we're in a sort of stalemate function at the moment. Um, and we've been sort of waiting for the spring counteroffensive, which is now going to be a summer counteroffensive for a couple of months. Um, and, you know, maybe jets would be a part of that. Um, I think you're more likely to see a stepping up in terms of the supply of some of the defense tech testing things that the United States is developing. So, you know, everyone talks about the TB2 drone um, that Turkey makes. The United States has its own equivalent um, that is getting a lot of field test usage in Ukraine. I think you'd see step ups in those sorts of supplies before you really got to the big F-16 one. Uh, and again, similar to the tank situation with Abrams tanks, you might see, say, the United Kingdom offer planes first before the United States makes that jump itself. Great. Well, let's let's wrap this chapter here because we will be obviously doing more on Ukraine in the future, um, and hopefully we'll be able to cover the the some offensive um, when it happens. Um, but let's let's move on a little bit to the south of Ukraine, uh, or southwest to be precise, and let's look at Greece because I think it's something that's been relatively gone on the radar of international news but you know in a in a continent where the center-right hasn't been faring too well of late i think is fair to say um there's been a remarkable success story coming from greece um jorge why don't you get us every details and we'll chat about it yes uh, i think we uh you know when we are addressing greece i think we we may as well just take a step back and and recall some of the episodes that we've done and particularly one episode which you put on uh you splendidly put together francois uh many months ago uh it was an episode about the bicentennial 
of the independence war against the Ottomans. And, um, and I think Greece has always been very close to the heart of this podcast. We, we care about Greece. We think it's an important country. We don't think it's some sort of uh, Eastern backwater uh, that, you know, that we, that, that we just sort of like uh, uh, just paper over. Uh, Jorge, do, do you remember the, um, the pigs label? That was very fashionable about 10 years ago. That lumped in together Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain as, you know, the kind of lazy, lazy southerners yeah. who were bathing in the sun in the, near the Mediterranean and weren't paying their taxes. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm happy that acronym has kind of disappeared because it was it was quite brutal. And I think a good reflection of, of sometimes how the conversation had shifted um, during the, the darkest hours of the Eurozone crisis. Yeah. And, and I think you've just touched upon the sort of the the dichotomy between the frugal nations of North, Northern Europe and the more uh, uh, prodigious uh, nations of the South. But I think, look, um, uh, what is very interesting about the recent political cycles of Greece, and again, I just want to remind our audience that if they've listened to, to the episodes in the past, they've, uh, they're have they aware of sort of the history behind and the meaning behind uh, Greek modernity, right? The fact that Greece took a stand against Ottoman occupation in 1821. We uh, we did a fantastic episode on that, and people may may well recall it. Uh, but just thinking recently, we've uh, we've gone through uh, some very interesting electoral cycles in, in Greece recently. I mean, people have to remember that uh, from 2015 to 2019, Greece had the most far left government of Europe by far, led by Alexis Tsipras. Uh, this was a government which, right upon being elected, uh, we were actually, you may remember this, uh, we were two years into college, uh, and you may, vivid, I, I, I for one, vividly remember when uh, Alexis Tsipras, right off the bat, when he got elected, he put uh, a, a referendum up, up to the Greek, uh, the Greek people where, where he asked them, you know, are we going to accept the bailout terms of the Juncker Commission, the IMF and the ECB, or are we going to reject them? And the Greek people rejected them. Uh, they voted for ohi, which means no, uh, uh, counterintuitively. Uh, nay means yes in Greek. But the ohi won. Um, and, um, and you have to remember that the pre prior government, pri previous, uh, the, the uh, government prior to Tsipras was a center-right government led by Antonis Samaras, who was a very sort of uh, a neoliberal kind of government, very centered on the economy, very uh, centered on, on uh, well, getting the, the country's finances in shape by reducing the deficit and the debt. Um, but after Tsipras, and we can get back and sort of uh, assess what Tsipras meant for Greece, but after Tsipras, we've seen another central-right government, this time by Kiriakos Mitsotakis, he's a prime minister. And it's it's kind of a different sort of, it's a different flavor of central-right. It's also neoliberal, neoliberal on economics, but really, uh, uh, quite importantly, it has taken a very firm stance on migration. Uh, Mitsotakis yep. says that uh, his government's position on legal migration is tough but fair. And um, and again, this is a problem for Greece. It has been a problem for many years. Greece uh, receives far more legal immigrants than its size in the European economy would warrant. Uh, it has had to deal with, uh, and again, this is again the, the classic problem of the EU immigration system, which is that when an asylum seeker makes it into EU territory, 
you cannot expel them. You cannot, uh, that would be refoulement. So you have to uh, allow them to file a claim for asylum. And a lot of the times when they file that uh, a claim, uh, they get, uh, uh, they dis disappear within the system, right? They don't show up to their court hearings and they become irregular migrants, illegal migrants. And Greece wants to put an end to this. It wants to be tough on border protection so that less illegal migrants come in. Uh, because obviously the EU for now is not willing to help countries like Greece and Spain and Italy that receive more migrants than they than they are able to accommodate. So, um, Jorge, before we get in, into the weeds too much, just in a, a few words, I think let, let's not miss the bigger story here, which is a incumbent government has not only won the election, but actually increased mm. its share of the vote. Now, what makes the whole conversation a bit tricky is the electoral system in Greece is has become fully proportional uh, recently as a result of uh, Syriza's reform in Alexis Tsipras. Before that, there used to be a kind of... Uh, the, the largest party was granted extra seats to make sure that there'd be... A, a significant majority that would be capable of ruling. At the moment, um, I think I think all the results are fully reported now. Over 300 seats in Parliament, Tsipras's party, New Democracy, centre-right party, got 146. Mm. Um, so they're a few seats short of majority, but um, Mitsotakis changed the electoral uh, law quite recently to go back to the old system that's going to give a a, that's going to grant extra seats to whoever's in first position. So essentially what that means is he's done quite well. He's basically a bit more popular than he was at the start of the term, which is not easy when you're the incumbents. Cerise on the other side saw its share of a vote drop by 11.5% of the vote. That's quite a considerable decline. And that means that, you know, that uh, Syriza, the left-wing party is at 20%, uh, New Democracy is at 40%, well ahead of everyone else. Now, he's going to call another election because Mitsotakis wants his majority. And in the new election, this new SAP election, there will be this extra grant of, I think, 50 seats to whoever's in first position. And that should be enough for him to get a majority. Um, and I think he's confident that he will get it because the opposition is far behind. The immigration is, is a big part of that conversation. But also, I think we need to mention the fact that Greece has gone through a lot of economic hardship hmm. and there's a little bit of a good story starting to emerge. The IMF has been quite happy with what's going on. I think salaries have finally started to increase a little bit after being absolutely savaged by uh, the, during the debt crisis. Um, they're starting to export more. So, you know, there's, there's a start of something positive that is beginning to emerge. And I think the Greeks have uh, recognized that. Yeah. There was a bit of a scandal, um, which was a major train crash uh, a few weeks, a few months before the election, and a wiretapping scandal. Many, many political figures from the opposition were being wiretapped by foreign actors, and apparently, the, uh, the, the some people in the government or at least in the security services knew about it, but didn't didn't tell anyone about it. And the train scandal was uh, a train crash, killing I think some fifty people, and uh, there was a lot of issues with security and standards not being respected, and understaffed trains and all the rest of it so um the fact that despite all of that he's managed to slightly incre increase his share of the votes 
is a good signing again. I, was, I, was, I started with that, but it's not like there's been many, you know, encouraging stories for the centre-right across Europe. They've been basically wiped out of all the major countries uh, except the UK. And yeah, so a, a, bit, of, uh, a bit of good news for, for, for the centre-right. Yeah, and I think it sort of helps relocate the political spectrum in its proper place now that you know as you said now that you no longer have austerity uh sort of bearing weighing down on the political system and, and sort of uh predetermining the the policy preferences of the center right and the center left in fact because uh Tsipras had to uh to implement some of that austerity as well but now that you no longer have that sort of uh de- determining factor uh, the center right is sort of relocating re- towards a more sort of Christian democratic uh, outlook. And I think migration was a really important uh, issue in this race. And there was a very interesting uh, uh, double page uh, report in the New York Times that I wanted to mention. Uh, the New York Times, the international edition of the Times ran a double a double page report where they essentially said, you know, Mitsotakis is kind of a the Orban that the EU can tolerate. It, he's an Orban that the EU can deal with. Um, and by which they meant that actually, if you look at their migration policies, Mitsotakis doesn't differ that much from Orban. They're both sort of like fence erecting, migration stopping, right wing leaders. Uh, in fact, by the way, I forgot to mention, but Mitsotakis ran on uh, on a promise to erect a fence uh, on the border with with Turkey. We'll see how that goes because he, uh, he wants the EU to pay for that. Uh, and we'll see how Erdogan, who also got reelected on a similar timeline, uh, well, he hasn't been reelected yet. Well, yeah, so he, he he's yeah. yeah, but but uh, but what, what, what I mean is that you know there was this really interesting feature in the Times saying you know their policies are not that different. Mitsotakis and Orban are both working to curtail right. illegal entries, but Orban does it in a way where it's like clouded in this fiercely populist rhetoric, whereas Mitsotakis doesn't really make a big fuss about his migration policies. He do, he gets the job done, but he doesn't make a big deal out of it. So the EU can deal with that. There's also a sense that Greece has been taking more more than its fair share in the past past few years, and whereas Hungary quite quickly shut its borders um and and uh, you know hasn't been contributing as much and on top of that as you said there's been this kind of fierce rhetoric that uh orban has been has been using um that ruffle two things back in Brussels.